When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 20, The House of Succession. Ashurbanipal was 17 years old when he became ruler of the known world. He'd never known a time when Nineveh wasn't the capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, or when the magnificent palace without rival hadn't towered over the southwest corner of the city. His youth had been spent in the Bit Reduti, or House of Succession, the smaller palace in the north of Nineveh that he'd inherited from his father, Esarhaddon. It was in this very house, at the age of four, that Ashurbanipal had his first hard lesson in Assyrian politics. His grandfather, Sennacherib, had been praying in the Bit Reduti when two of his sons had brutally murdered him, either by sword or by stone. Once Esarhaddon had revenged the act and secured the throne, he built a new palace for himself in the former Bitmashari, the house of weapons or armory of the capital. The house of succession was left to Esarhaddon's widowed mother, Sennacherib's Aramean consort, Nakaya, and his younger children, including one named Ashurbani Apli, Asur as creator of an heir, or, as we know him better, Ashurbanipal. Last episode, I discussed the broad education provided to the young prince, who in his youth was considered far from the throne. Perhaps the most unusual item on his curriculum was learning how to read and write, in both Akkadian cuneiform, still the official language of the empire, and even more ancient Sumerian. It must have been strange for the young royal to not only be able to hear Mesopotamian history as told to him by priests and scribes, possibly condensed to the more pro-Assyrian highlights, but to actually delve into the source materials themselves. To read an ancient Sumerian tablet and feel the connection to a people as far removed from him as the Roman historian Livy is from us today to walk along the royal roads and wander through the enormous palaces of Nineveh and be confronted at almost every turn with the written histories of your ancestors, inscribed in brightly painted walls of stone. Now, I don't want to wax too poetic. After all, we are talking about a young boy who, for all we know, occupied his time chasing frogs down by the defensive moat. But a few things point toward a more special nature. 
For one, his actions later in life reflect an exceptional love and respect for Mesopotamian history and culture that likely stemmed, at least in part, from his youthful studies. Maybe it's a stretch to picture Alexander the Great sleeping with his dog-eared copy of the Iliad under his pillow. And, of course, it's harder to get a good night's sleep resting your head on a baked clay tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh. But still, Ashurbanipal must have exhibited exceptional qualities at an early age in order to be hand-picked over his older brother as Esarhaddon's successor in Nineveh. Ashurbanipal was 13 years old when two royal deaths changed his life forever. The first was his eldest brother, Sin Adina Apla, the former crown prince. The second was his mother, Ashur Hamat. Even as he mourned his wife and firstborn, Esarhaddon was deeply embroiled in a conflict with Egypt, and, as a practical matter, needed to establish the new line of succession before launching his next campaign. The expectation was that the king's eldest surviving son, Shamashum Ukin, would be elevated to crown prince from his current role as king of Babylonia, but that didn't happen. Instead, Esarhaddon apparently took the advice of his most influential advisor, his mother, Nakaya, and elevated the young Ashurbanipal. As mentioned previously, this was not a popular act, and caused quite a bit of friction both domestically and internationally. Ashurbanipal had also not been favored by the queen, but her death eliminated that factor. Whatever the king and his mother saw in the young prince, they must have figured it was worth a few grumbles and some arm-twisting. Besides, Esarhaddon was still a young king, and would likely continue ruling for decades to come. Except, three years later, Esarhaddon was dead, and the remote contingency had become an immediate reality. Ashurbanipal was suddenly king of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And to make sure everyone honored Esarhaddon's wishes, Ashurbanipal's grandmother, Nakaya, made all royal officials swear to support his sole claim to the throne. She was apparently not a woman to be trifled with. Ashurbanipal was sworn in as king of Assyria in early 668 BC, and reinstalled his older brother, Shamashum Ukin, as king of Babylonia that same year. The transition was smooth, and the brothers embarked upon an early period of relatively harmonious co-rule over Mesopotamia, with Ashurbanipal always the senior partner. When the Assyrian king embarked upon his first major military campaign the following year, the target was clear. Upon Esarhaddon's death, the pharaoh Taharqa had returned to Lower Egypt with his Kushite army and coerced the princes of the Nile Delta to revolt against Assyrian rule. In response, Ashurbanipal fielded an enormous army, made up of regular Assyrian forces in combination with soldiers from his Canaanite and Levantine vassals, along with naval forces commandeered from Cyprus and Phoenicia. In 667 BC, Ashurbanipal's troops flooded into the delta, overpowered all local and Nubian resistance, and sent Taharqa fleeing south, this time all the way back to the Nubian capital of Napata. The powerful mayor of Thebes, Mentuemhet, was left behind to surrender the Egyptian capital to Neo-Assyrian forces. Just like that, for the first time in history, all of Egypt had fallen under the control of a hostile foreign power.
Hostile as he was, Ashurbanipal reserved his actual vengeance for the rebellious Delta princes, who were rounded up and shipped off to Nineveh in chains. The only noble to escape this fate was Necho of Sais, who convinced the Assyrians of his abiding loyalty and was rewarded with reinstallation as puppet pharaoh, this time over the entire country. As Esarhaddon recorded, I laid upon him a loyalty oath that was stricter than what existed before. I encouraged him, put bright garments on him, and gave him a golden hoe, the symbol of his kingship. I put golden rings upon his fingers and gave him an iron dagger with a sheath inlaid with gold, upon which I had written my name. Chariots, horses, and mules I granted him for his royal journeys. I sent him my officials and governors to help him. I showed him kindness even greater than my father had done. With the delta, at least, secure and pacified, Neo-Assyrian forces again returned home. An uneasy status quo held for two more years, and was finally broken upon the death of Taharqa and the succession of his nephew, Tantamani, to the throne of Napata. In 664 BC, Tantamani's Nubian army marched along the Nile into Upper Egypt and managed to recapture the capital of Thebes from Necho's forces. Tantamani then pushed onward into Lower Egypt, where he confronted and defeated an army of Delta princes loyal to Assyria. Only Memphis managed to resist the Nubian assault, but it was surrounded and besieged by Tantamani's forces. The following year, Ashurbanipal again sent Neo-Assyrian forces into Egypt, breaking the siege of Memphis and driving Tantamani's army south to the security of Napata. This time, to instill a lesson against future defiance, Ashurbanipal sacked the Egyptian capital of Thebes, the first time the great city had suffered such a violent assault over its long history. The massive treasury of the great temple of Amun at Karnak was looted, and the gold, silver, and precious objects it held, the inheritance of centuries of Egyptian history and influence, were carted off to Ashurbanipal's palace in Nineveh. The lesson was effective. Egyptian support for a Kushite rule evaporated, and Nubian forces never again crossed north of the first cataract. With the death of Tantamani in 656 BC, the long-held dream of Kushite domination of Egypt finally came to an end. In years to come, the rulers of Napata could still gaze upon the enormous temples at Jebel Barkal and Kawa, or the royal pyramid fields at Urkuru and Meroe, and reflect on the glorious century when the kings of Kush had held sway from Meroe to the Nile Delta. But it was tinged with the bitter knowledge that Egypt, source of so much of their culture, wealth, and power, was forever lost to them. Satisfied with the loyalty of the pharaoh Necho I of Sais, who'd lost his life doing battle against Tantamani's forces, Ashurbanipal installed the pharaoh's son, Samtik, or Semeticus in Greek, as the pharaoh Samtik I of the 26th Egyptian ruling dynasty. In order to foster greater Egyptian unity, Samtik allied himself with Mentuemhet, the powerful Theban noble who'd surrendered Upper Egypt to the Assyrians, and had his own daughter, Nitocris, installed as divine adoratress of Amun at Karnak. With southern stability assured, Samtik turned his attention to the elimination of his northern rivals. 
Back in Assyria, Ashurbanipal was gearing up for a major campaign against the Medes of the Zagros Mountains when he received a plea for aid from a distant and previously unknown quarter. During the first half of the 7th century BC, the western Anatolian kingdom of Lydia had grown in both power and size, particularly after the fall of its neighbor, Phrygia, to the Sumerians. Back in the Late Bronze Age, the region had been part of Arzawa, a buffer state between the Hittite kingdom and the Mycenaean Greek coastal territories of Ahiawa. More recently, Lydia had been bounded by the Anatolian countries of Mycia, Caria, Phrygia, and coastal Ionia. Its latest king, Gyges, had built up its military and relocated its capital to the city of Sardis. His most immediate threat was the Sumerians, who were still raiding widely across western Anatolia. It was Gyges who sent a request for aid to Ashurbanipal, who, occupied with his Median war plans, summarily dismissed it. The Lydian king was left to his own devices, which turned out to be fairly substantial, and he managed to successfully push the Sumerians out of Lydian territory. In an apparent fit of spite, always constructive, Gyges followed up by sending two Sumerian prisoners of war to Nineveh. More fatefully, he opened up independent relations with the Egyptian pharaoh Samtik I, offering to send him a large number of Ionian Greek and Carian mercenaries to help him consolidate his hold over the delta, an offer the pharaoh eagerly accepted. Gyges eventually met his end in battle against the Sumerians, but the Lydian state he'd solidified would endure over the next century, as it became more and more integrated with events in the larger Near East. In the decade after 662 BC, Ashurbanipal led Neo-Assyrian forces repeatedly against the Medes and the Manaeans, possibly using Scythian allies for help, as well as against Elam. In 664 BC, the same year that Tantamani's forces had retaken Egypt, the Elamite king Urtaku had launched a surprise attack against Babylonia. Although preoccupied with his Egyptian war preparations, Ashurbanipal had sent Assyrian forces to assist his older brother in repelling the invaders. Upon Urtaku's death the following year, an usurper named, get ready, Tepti Humban Ishushinak, sensibly abbreviated by the Assyrians as Tuman, took power. In a strange twist, the former Elamite royal family, including Urtaku's son, Humban Nikash, were forced to flee to the, um, security of Assyria. When, around 655 BC, the new Elamite king finally demanded their extradition, the reply was a Neo-Assyrian army under Ashurbanipal, who confronted Tuman's forces along the Ulaya River. The subsequent battle was another victory for Ashurbanipal, and the Elamite army was driven across the river and into the plains of Susa. Tuman was killed and decapitated, and his head was shipped back to Nineveh. When the Elamite ambassadors saw the head of their former king, they went ballistic, one supposedly tearing out his beard and the other committing suicide on the spot. Ashurbanipal later hung Tuman's head on a tree in the garden of the royal palace as a pleasant backdrop for dinner parties. Definitely a conversation piece. 
Ashurbanipal installed Humban Nikash and another prince named Tamaritu as co-rulers over Elam, which was converted into an Assyrian vassal state. Overall, a nice, clean, and successful operation. Except that while the Assyrian king had been otherwise occupied, Egypt had once again declared independence. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, after consolidating his hold over the Nile Delta, the pharaoh Samtik I had handed the occupation forces an eviction notice. Backed up by the military power of his new Greek and Carian mercenaries, and driven the Assyrians as far north as the Philistine city of Ashdod. Tied down with Elam, Ashurbanipal could do little more than receive the news with the usual mild exasperation and add yet another item to his to-do list. Unfortunately, in 652 BC, any plans Ashurbanipal may have had were exploded by another shocker much closer to home. Opening his mail one day, Ashurbanipal came across a letter from his older brother, Shamashum Ukin, king of Babylon. Instead of the usual cordial correspondence between royal siblings, this letter was a bit different, in that it stated that, one, Babylonia was now independent, two, Shamashum Ukin was now king of both Assyria and Babylonia, and three, Ashurbanipal was now only the governor of Nineveh, and as such, the subject of Shamashum Ukin. Well, I can see how... Wait, what? Okay, so maybe it goes without saying that relations between the two brothers had soured over the past few years. For starters, there was the lingering resentment from the daddy-liked-you-best succession pick, combined with the ongoing humiliation of being forced to take orders from your younger brother. You could call it co-rulership all you wanted, but when you looked at his actual areas of responsibility— tax collection, levying soldiers, resolving local disputes, and presiding over religious ceremonies, Shamashum Ukin was, in reality, little more than a glorified vassal king. In contrast, Ashurbanipal exercised absolute control over Assyria, all of its provinces, all of its vassal states, and made all decisions regarding both the domestic and foreign policy of the empire. As an added insult, even local building projects in Babylonia couldn't be initiated without Ashurbanipal's blessing. Day in and day out, Shamashum Ukin received a long line of nobles and foreign dignitaries, many of whom had the same question, either spoken or unspoken, on their lips. You're the eldest. Why don't you rule the empire? You're the king of Sumer and Akkad the same title held by Sargon the Great, why don't you rule the empire? And, in quieter whispers, if you took up the great cause of Babylonian liberty, all of Assyria's enemies would support you, and you, not your brother, would be king of the world. To his credit, it took him 16 years before he finally cracked. In 652 BC, Shamashum Ukin sealed the gates of Babylon, Sippar, and Borsippa, mailed his Declaration of Independence to his brother, and began assembling troops from a broad array of anti-Assyrian forces. Along with the usual Chaldean Elamite nucleus, troops were sent from Phoenicia, Philistia, Syria, Judah, Arabia, and Nabataea, as well as from the new Lydian-Egyptian axis.
Even for a king as powerful and sure of himself as Ashurbanipal, facing off against such a huge coalition led by his own older brother must have been a daunting prospect. After meeting with his advisors, he decided that his best option was to attack quickly, before the various enemy contingents could be molded into a cohesive force. In 652 BC, Ashurbanipal gathered his armies and led them south along the Tigris into Babylonia. What ensued was a bitter, hard-fought, brutal war of supremacy between the two brothers. For four years, near-constant warfare raged across Babylonia. But in the end, Ashurbanipal's forces managed to besiege the ancient and troublesome capital. A civil war in Elam prevented any assistance from that quarter, and in its absence, both sides knew that it was only a matter of time before Babylon fell. Losing all hope, Shamashum Ukin set fire to his royal palace and allowed himself to perish in the flames. With his death in 648 BC, the war was over. Similar to the civil war that had raged between the sons of Shalmaneser III two centuries before, the conflict left the Neo-Assyrian Empire militarily exhausted. However, Ashurbanipal was still a strong king, greatly loved by his people, and the empire had become more stable since the reforms of Tiglath-Pileser III, so it would be some time yet before the cracks began to show in the Assyrian armor. For Ashurbanipal, victory was only the first half of the equation. True satisfaction would only come after taking vengeance on those who had turned Shamashum Ukin against his own brother and stood alongside him in rebellion. The first to feel the Assyrian king's wrath were his brother's Chaldean co-conspirators in Babylon, all of whom were captured and horribly massacred. The city itself was left unharmed and Ashurbanipal installed a placeholder king named Kandalanu to preside over the remnants of the population. It's believed that the new king was either physically deformed or simple-minded, Ashurbanipal's parting shot at Babylonian pride and superiority. Ashurbanipal's next targets were the Arabs and Nabataeans. The latter people dwelled in northern Arabia, between the Euphrates and the Red Sea, and would eventually move into abandoned Edomite lands and create the carved sandstone incarnation of the city of Petra. Revenging himself against both these peoples proved challenging, as they could seemingly appear out of nowhere on camelback, attack, and disappear just as quickly back into the desert. But Ashurbanipal was relentless, and eventually brought the troublesome tribes to heel. As a symbol of their submission, one Arab royal, named Uate, had a ring put through his jaw and a collar around his neck, and was set to guarding one of the city gates of Nineveh. Strangely, the crescent of defiant states stretching from Egypt through the Levant and into Anatolia managed to escape Ashurbanipal's wrath, probably for a variety of reasons. Retaliating against the Egyptian pharaoh Samtik I and his growing army of Greek mercenaries would have meant a major campaign, one that the overworked Assyrian army would have been hard-pressed to wage. The Levantine vassal states had likely pled for Ashurbanipal's mercy, resuming submission and tribute, at the earliest opportunity. 
and Gyges, king of Lydia, had recently fallen in battle against Samaria and been replaced by a more pliant heir. To some extent, the Assyrian king probably had to bow to the reality of his own depleted forces and weigh his abiding thirst for vengeance alongside other, more practical considerations. That said, there was definitely one more target that he was not about to skimp on vengeance-wise, regardless of the cost, the ancient and super-meddlesome kingdom of Elam. After vanishing into the woodwork for centuries, Elam seemed to have come back on the scene for no other reason than to upend any stability that Assyria tried to impose on Babylonia. Their most insidious and successful tactic was corrupting local rulers by filling their heads with visions of power and glory and then sending them off to the Assyrian meat grinder. It was one thing when their targets were jumped-up Chaldean nobles with delusions of grandeur, but this was different. This was family. And speaking of family, the Elamites were also long overdue for payback over the kidnapping of Ashurbanipal's uncle, Sennacherib's son Ashurnadin Shumi, decades before. To sum up, the Elamites needed to go down. Not only hard, but example hard. Total destruction hard. Epic palace inscription hard. In 647 BC, Ashurbanipal's armies arrived at the gates of Susa. The ancient Elamite capital on the Karun River had been founded around 4400 BC, making it one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. Nearly 500 years had passed since the last great conqueror, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar I, had sacked and looted the capital in an assault so devastating that Elamite power had been broken for centuries. Now, with the country in the midst of its own civil war, the latest Elamite successor was left to defend Susa against an even more powerful enemy. The outcome was a foregone conclusion. Susa was taken, looted, leveled, and the population deported en masse to the Assyrian province of Samaria. As Ashurbanipal later recorded, Susa, the great holy city, abode of their gods, seat of their mysteries, I conquered. I entered its palaces, I opened their treasuries where silver and gold, goods and wealth were amassed. I destroyed the ziggurat of Susa. I smashed its shining copper horns. I reduced the temples of Elam to naught. Their gods and goddesses I scattered to the winds. The tombs of their ancient and recent kings I devastated, I exposed to the sun, and I carried away their bones to the land of Assur. I devastated the provinces of Elam, and all their lands I sowed with salt. Susa, of course, was just the start. All other Elamite power centers were attacked in succession by Ashurbanipal's armies, and subjected to similar treatment once they were taken. As the Assyrian king later recorded, the dust of Madaktu, Hatlemash, and the rest of the cities I gathered together and took to Assyria. The noise of people, the tread of cattle and sheep, the glad sounds of rejoicing I banished from its fields. Wild asses, gazelle, and all kinds of beasts of the plain I caused to lie down among them, as if at home. The process of elimination ground on, 
slowly, inexorably, over much of the next eight years, as various Elamite rulers arose in succession, only to be summarily cut down by Ashurbanipal's forces. Upon the defeat of the last Elamite army in 639 BC, the 3,000-year conflict between Elam and Mesopotamia was finally over. Elam would linger on for another century or so, a shadow of its former self, before finally disappearing forever. In the wake of his victory, Ashurbanipal returned to Nineveh. Thirty years had passed since he'd first assumed the throne, years spent in near-constant warfare against the enemies of Assyria. But now, for the first time in living memory, the frontier seemed quiet. True, Egypt had been lost, but only after its troublesome Kushite rulers had been eliminated. In addition, Ashurbanipal had looted countless treasures from its ancient capital of Thebes, including two enormous obelisks, each coated in electrum and weighing over 32 tons. The kingdom of Urartu was also free, but sought its future in eastern conquest, leaving their common border secure. Everywhere else, Elam, Babylonia, Media, Persia, Manea, northern Arabia, Syria, Canaan, Phoenicia, Anatolia, and Cyprus, more lands than ever held by the empire under any previous king, either lay prostrate at Ashurbanipal's feet or, at the very least, were unwilling to openly challenge Assyria's power. For Ashurbanipal, the dream of one world under Assur, first conceived over a thousand years before by the great Amorite king Shamshi Adad, must have felt very, very close indeed. To commemorate this signal moment in Neo-Assyrian primacy, Ashurbanipal co-opted a festival of the goddess Ishtar to celebrate a good, old-fashioned Roman-style triumph. As part of the festivities, Ashurbanipal rode through the broad avenues of Nineveh, a city made mighty and beautiful by his grandfather, Sennacherib, in an enormous wheeled throne, pulled by three Elamite princes and an Arabian king. Learned and cultured he may have been, but first and foremost, he was an Assyrian. Next time, we'll take stock of the Neo-Assyrian Empire during the latter part of Ashurbanipal's rule. We'll look at the major changes taking place within Assyria and across the broader Near East toward the end of the 7th century BC. And we'll also spend some time discussing Ashurbanipal's two most important legacies. The first, the obliteration of Elam, would inadvertently sow the seeds of Assyria's own destruction and pave the way for the ascendancy of the next generation of great regional powers, the Medes and the Persians. The second, the creation of the first great library of the ancient world, would be the vehicle by which a priceless archive of Mesopotamian literature, history, and culture would survive thousands of years of near oblivion and finally make its way down to us in the modern world. All this next time on The Ancient World. <laughs>